the resilience of Indigenous people, that gives me so much hope and inspiration for the greater sum of our human family managing to survive through climate change. Indigenous people have been experiencing the fifth mass extinction event since Columbus arrived in the Americas. So they know how to survive and they need to be leaders in how we move forward. That's Severin Kala Suzuki, environmental activist, Indigenous languages advocate, and the new executive director of the David Suzuki Foundation. She's our guest on this episode of Explore, a Canadian Geographic podcast. Welcome to all you explorers out there, armchair and in motion. I'm your host, David McGuffin. Before we get to our guest, and it's a great conversation, I want to give you a quick update on the RCGS Polar Plunge fundraiser for this very podcast. I'm happy to report it was a huge success. We all jumped into Frozen Meach Lake up here in the Gatineau Hills. Thanks so much to all of you who donated and helped us reach our goals. If you haven't donated yet, there is still time. You can go to rcgs.org forward slash polar plunge. The funds go to support future episodes of this podcast. I especially want to thank two of our plungers, Chief Perry Belgard and former Environment Minister Catherine McKenna. Both were only recently made Honorary President and Honorary Fellow of the RCGS, respectively, and both took part in the Frozen Meach Lake Plunge, which I'm sure they never imagined doing when they signed up with the Society. So a big thanks to them, and thanks to all those who took part, whether jumping into the lake or just organizing this amazing event. It was all captured on video by award-winning documentary maker Jill Heinerth. Keep an eye on that on the rcgs.org website, also on the social media sites as well, at Cangeo. So thanks to all of you out there for supporting the Polar Plunge and smart, thoughtful conversations like the one we have today. Severin Kala Suzuki has been an environmental activist for almost as long as she can remember, which isn't surprising. When you consider that her father is David Suzuki, Canada's leading environmentalist and the longtime host of CBC's much-loved The Nature of Things. Kala Suzuki's moment in the environmental spotlight came early, 30 years ago. As a 12-year-old, she gave a speech to world leaders at the first-ever UN Climate Change Conference in Rio, the Earth Summit. I am only a child, yet I know if all the money spent on war was spent on finding environmental answers, ending poverty, and finding treaties. What a wonderful place this earth would be. We talk about that viral moment in a pre-viral age and its echoes found in the words of Greta Thunberg today. We also discuss what it's like to fill her father's very big shoes at the foundation that carries his name. And as RCGS marks the UN Decade of Indigenous Languages, we get into why she believes the link between Indigenous languages and our land is key to turning around the state of our environment. Severin Kala Suzuki, welcome to the Explore podcast. Thank you very much for having me, David. So first of all, congratulations on becoming Executive Director of the David Suzuki Foundation. Uh, I'm curious, I'm sure a lot of other people are too, about how daunting it is to take over an organization that was founded by your father and your mother. Well, it's definitely a huge honor for me. Mm -hmm. I, I watched my parents found the foundation uh, back in 1990. So it was a, a time that was really quite um, an exciting time for the environmental movement. There was so many front lines, battles mm -hmm. being waged for rainforest here on, on the BC coast and across Canada and actually throughout the world. The Amazon rainforest was something that was very much in the public eye and 
my father having traveled down to the Amazon uh, for the Nature of Things show, mm -hmm. uh, had gotten really involved with the Kayapo people of southern Para. And so I actually had traveled down with my family when I was about eight years old to to visit the community of Aokri. And I'd seen with my own eyes the incredible beauty of the Amazon mm -hmm. and what it was like for people still living in the rainforest. And then to I'd also seen the destruction of it. So I was very aware of the reality of these situations. They were, we're talking about destruction of the land, of the waters. And, uh, and it was really, um, it, was, it was quite exciting. And it was, you know, we are also, through my parents' work with different people on environmental front lines, it was very inspiring because the, the humans that are working, that were working to stop this destruction were, were mm -hmm. incredibly inspiring. So in my, my child mind, this was a huge influence on me and I, and I was galvanized. So seeing them start the foundation way back 32 years ago, I was really um, inspired and I think it really helped me keep my attitude of empowerment because they really showed me that, you know, you can take action. You must take action and you can take action and you can work with your friends and allies to try to do the best you can to advance social, political and environmental change. So that spirit is, you know, it's really behind, it's mm -hmm. been behind my activism my whole life since childhood and, uh, and I, and I, try to carry that with me as I as I now step back into uh, working with my parents and, and the foundation that they they founded. So it's daunting, but it's mm -hmm. exciting. And it, it does feel like a return home. Nice. I mean, you talk about going down to the Amazon at the, as a young child. I mean, I was just researching this, remembering too, that it's this year is now 30 years since you as a 12 year old gave a speech at really the first climate summit in Rio, the UN Earth Summit. And I'm just wondering what memories you have of that moment. Yes, that's right. I, I was there. I was there as a 12-year-old youth activist fighting for my future. And it, it's, um, it's quite amazing because back then, you know, we didn't have social media. Well, we, the internet hadn't gone public. So it's hard, mm -hmm. to even, it's yeah. hard to even remember how we fundraised and organized to get down there myself. And uh, I had a little club, me, me and my friends, uh, who are in grade seven, by that time, we, we uh, fundraised to be able to travel down to Rio and then to be there. And uh, my mother in particular really helped us do that. And it, it's amazing to think of all that was going on at that time. There was a huge sense of worry for the environment. There was, uh, people were touting this, this meeting as being the, the meeting that would chart the path for humanity with respect to environment and development. And there was this real hope that, you know, we could choose a different path. And this was in 1992. Yeah. It, it was, it was a, a, a radical uh, conference by, by today's standards, I have to say. You know, we're always talking about, well, oh, I guess we, you know, we failed then to make, to, to, to have politicians and leaders listen. But looking back and, and looking at the legally binding declarations that came out of that summit, I mean, by today's standards, they are radical. And they did set up. One of them did set up um, the UN United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, which set up, uh, you know, the conferences of the parties, the COPs that we now have had for the last 26 years. 
Um, so there was a lot of infrastructure set up there. Uh, I was able to attend. Uh, my friends and I, we, we, we had a little booth that we used at the Global Forum to speak to anyone who would listen to us. And we, we found mm -hmm. that instead of being ignored, we actually were, you know, kind of an oddity and very, very much people were curious about why we were there at such a serious conference. And we, we started getting invited to various um, various events happening throughout the city and David Suzuki my dad he was invited of course being a famous person and so he would always use his uh, platform to give us a few minutes of time at the end of his speeches to um, to share our message and after two weeks of hard work we um, we got a break someone had dropped out of a plenary session someone had bumped into someone else who'd recommended that we should uh, we should fill that five minute gap so uh, we we got a we got a call from the UN um, very last minute that if we wanted to speak to the plenary session we could we had uh, we had a couple hours to get there and we we hustled down and I was able to uh, deliver a speech. The interesting thing about that speech yeah. was that it was captured on video. We didn't know this at the time, but of course all UN proceedings are are um, videotaped. And um, in the years afterwards people somehow heard about the speech and, and asked for videos of it. So someone at the UN had sent a VHS or actually, yeah, VHS copy. Mm -hmm. And we made copies and sent it all over the world. Um, and eventually the internet uh, became a thing. YouTube was invented and the video has recirculated. So it's just been this really interesting um, yeah. event in my life that definitely has lived on in a, in a very strange way at the interface with uh, the social media age. It's amazing watching it now and just uh, how much of the language you used at the time is being echoed by young activists still. And Greta Thunberg, I think of most of all. And I'm, I mean, what kind of, have you seen change since that time? What more change needs to happen? We've seen so much change in, since real in 1992 mm -hmm. and yet the themes of how of what we're talking about are exactly the same and it's quite seeing Greta become so well known with her message was so emotional for me at one you know I, I, I still feel at once you know so inspired and moved by what she's she's saying and so grateful that today's generation is picking up the call in the way that they are, and it, and I also feel a great um, a great shame. You know, we knew this was happening. We mm -hmm. we were you know we were spelling it out thirty years ago in the mainstream. I mean, you had the politicians of the world saying they were environmentalists back in the nineteen nineties. Um, so so we really failed. We failed and. We, we failed to prevent climate change from, from happening. And now we're in a much, um, you know, we're, we're, we still can mitigate how bad it gets, but we're in a much more compromised situation. Mm -hmm. So hearing Greta and, her, and her, her friends and colleagues speak the way they do is at once, you know, so moving, both, you know, inspiring and kind of devastating to me. With the foundation and sort of in talking in terms of that kind of how do we deal with the climate situation we're in and what do we do to mitigate it? What future direction do you see working towards with the foundation to deal with that? Well, I'm very inspired by the people who I'm getting to know working at the foundation. 
people who work at the DSF are, are not just working a job. They are, you know, working towards their passion, which is social transformation. So mm -hmm. very ambitious. Um, I think that there's a lot of exciting things that we're working on. And at the same time, we're looking at what the pandemic world holds, holds for us, you know, the post-pandemic, like what is the new reality of um, mm -hmm. social understanding of, of all of these ecological issues in the new kind of um, social landscape that the pandemic leaves? We don't really know that yet, but we do see, you know, there are these trends. And, and I'm very glad to see that climate change has not just been forgotten. In fact, I think it's the opposite. You know, even though we've been so preoccupied with COVID, um, you know, people have not forgotten about climate change. And in fact, it's even got, concern has even increased. So I, I think that's really exciting. We are, um, you know, we have our climate team that um, is really got some great expertise. I just was on a call with um, our team who has a, uh, in Quebec that has a very strong legal perspective mm -hmm. and is very interested in, in trade issues and also in Indigenous legal traditions as well. And we're, we're currently beginning a partnership with Ganawage in Montreal um, and, and working with them, looking at indi their Indigenous traditions of the rights of nature. So I, I'm really inspired and, and interested in that direction that the DSF is going in, um, you know, how can we deepen our work with climate and, and, and um, really investigate how our how our laws in Canada are holding us back meeting our targets, but also in Indigenous um, yeah. traditions. I, I think that's a really exciting path forward. Yeah. I mean, you talk about the, the rights of nature. Can you give examples of what that would look like? Well, we've seen over the last few years in um, New Zealand, the Maori people, and also in India, um, with a legal argument for bodies of nature, um, so in these two cases, rivers, actually getting recognition as legal persons or for, for personhood. In mm -hmm. these societies, rivers uh, are esteemed in a very different way than in, you know, Western capitalist society where a river is, you know, that, well, that's a resource. Um, it's something to be utilized um, either for, you know, for, for water, drinking, irrigation, or power, you know, that's how we see a river. And yet in so many traditions and, and in Maori tradition and, um, and in, in a lot of places in India, rivers are seen as sacred, sacred mm -hmm. things, sacred bodies that even have an element of their own autonomy and personhood. And so in these places, you've seen movements um, towards establishing that in law. And I think it's just such an exciting thing that is starting to be recognized and it shows that, you know, we humans can start to change our entrenched uh, legal systems and the systems that, that have been, that are now just the way it is. You know, we can change that. And mm -hmm. also speaks to the diversity of human culture and worldview that exists. You know, I think we forget now because we're living in such a globalized capitalist society. I mean, capitalism has really colonized the whole planet to a point where we can't even imagine that there's any other way of human existence. But really, you know, if you look at humanity, we are such a diversity of cultures, such a diversity of languages, such a diversity of different ways of looking at reality. 
And there are other ways that we can exist. And that is my inspiration when I think about how we're going to navigate the climate crisis, how we're going to navigate the sixth mass extinction. We need to really harness all the uh, imagination that belongs to humanity to try to, you know, figure our way out of this. And therein lies the answers because there are other ways of being that have existed for millennia, far, far longer than this current current paradigm and and we really have to remember that to free ourselves um, of this current context it's interesting because within canada we're very lucky in that we have indigenous populations that still have a living memory of living a different way too you know there's um so there is that resource to tap into isn't it absolutely and actually you know around the world there are indigenous populations that are still hanging in there that still have that memory. I mean, you know, so much has transformed in, I mean, even in my lifetime. I mean, I talk about, talk about what it was like in, at Rio 30 years ago before we really had the internet at all. And I feel like an old timer, but you think back, you know, like my father, uh, he's 85 years old. And I mean, even his memory of how things were, that was a totally different way of being. So we, we can draw on... All of us can draw on the memory of our elders and certainly in indigenous communities around the world, they definitely still have that connection to a time and a way of being when humans and nature were not such separated entities and disrespectful, had a dis- such a disrespectful relationship. I know language revitalization is a big part of also what you've done um, in living in Haida Gwaii and I'm, I'm really, I'm curious about the the connection between language and place and then that connection again to the environment and preservation of the environment. I'm wondering if you can just talk a bit about that. I've been very privileged to live for the past 14 years on Haida Gwaii, the home of the Haida Nation. It's an archipelago off the west coast of Canada. We're just south of the Alaskan panhandle and it's an incredible place. It's where the Haida Nation have continued to live for the last almost 14,000 years. So um, so just to, to experience it mm-hmm. um, as my home has been just an amazing experience. I, I married a Haida, Haida man and have Haida children. So I've been really in the community. And one of the things that I learned when, when I lived there is the importance of language. My husband was working on learning his own language. So just to step back, you know, in Canada, we have our history of residential schools and a real, a real attempt at eradicating Indigenous, well, eradicating Indigenous peoples and their, their connection to their community and their identity, mm-hmm. but also their languages. And so it worked really well, you know, 150 years of residential schools and um, across Canada, language, languages are definitely endangered. So um, my husband didn't grow up speaking his language, but he always wanted to to learn it. And so he was studying the language and and moving to Haida Gwaii, started learning as well. And I Mm -hmm. I really became passionate about it. I started working with the the last fluent speakers of Haida, of Haida Kil, which is our, our southern dialect. And uh, and learning it and and then teaching it to our children. And I realized working with the elders, you know, just just 
just starting to learn about different words that, you know, do not exist in English at all. And I think this is true right. of all languages. You know, you have these untranslatable words, these one word, beautiful descriptions of cultural concepts that don't exist anywhere else. And mm -hmm. I realized that those, that kind of nuance, that kind of understanding embedded in language is really what shapes our perspective of the world. And I, I, as I, as I've deepened my my learning about language learning in general, um, I'm currently doing a PhD in anthropology focused on Haida language and uh, revitalization. I, I really have deepened my understanding about this, and and um, Robin Wall Kimmerer writes about this. Uh, she's an amazing Potawatomi scholar. Mm -hmm. Uh, she she talks about you know the importance of things like pronouns. <laughs> so nowadays we're all talking about pronouns, and if you think about it, she writes you know we in the English language we we have pronouns that we use for um, inanimate what what we think of as inanimate or animal or plant things. Our pronoun is is really it. You know it's just kind of a de you know depersonified right. just kind of a thing something without you know, a, a personality. And yet in indigenous languages, there are special pronouns for other life forms. Um, you know, there's, there's different pronouns that we use that really convey a personhood or an identity and a sacredness to those things. So a, a river, coming back to our earlier conversation, a river is not an it. Yeah. A river would be like, you know, a him or her, you know, and if you think about it, and we, and we, 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 don't, we can't even fathom what kind of pronouns because they just don't exist in our language. But in indigenous languages, there's, there's, there's specific pronouns that really denote um, our relationship to that entity. And, you know, that kind of thing completely changes how, you know, and maybe subconsciously, but it changes the landscape of how you relate. If you related to a mountain, like mm -hmm. as a sacred and Wade Davis, uh, the anthropologist talks about this. He's, you know, you can look at a mountain and, and see a pile of rocks and minerals to mine and it, or you could look at it and see a sacred God, something that should be revered and respected. So that's just, you know, a little bit of some of the perspective that I, that I really have become totally, um, totally, uh, enmeshed in and, and concerned about and real, something that I really feel influences our attitude to the natural world and could potentially free us as we try to imagine something different. Interesting. Your husband, as he learned, as he learned the language, did he have grandparents to draw on or what was like, what were the resources for him starting out? We have in our community of Skidigit an amazing resource called the Skidigit Haida Immersion Program. Mm -hmm. And this was started by uh, the f last fluent speakers of the language, the elders of the community who got together. How many of them are there? Currently, there's only a few left, but they started working together back in, I think, 1998. And they got together realizing, oh, my goodness, you know, young people are not speaking this language We're, you know, we, we've got to write this down. We've got to, you know, create a way of writing this. Um, and so they really, they started a school that still is running today and, um, and they, they've created a, an incredible um, glossary and, and many different resources, children's books and different lessons. So he had that to draw on and then he also, one of the elders there was his mother who's the youngest fluent speaker of Haida. So he, wow. he did have resources and a passion for learning. Huh, 
I mean, that's hopeful. I mean, it sort of answers my question a bit, but I'm, I'm wondering what it does take to get to a point where we've restored natural intergenerational transmission of language like that. It's, it's very challenging, and, and mm -hmm. there's many different examples of communities that are grappling with that. You know, I think we went through a period where we were talking about dying languages, um, where we, we talked about... Um, languages is you know with this kind of certainty that these languages were were on their way out and yet there are communities that are showing that this is not true and uh, one one amazing example is daryl baldwin of the miami in the states um, mm -hmm. he and his family have really incredibly revitalized their language which was considered you know functionally extinct and through the resources, through looking throughout, um, you know, the records of, that were written down by the Jesuits who were, um, you know, colonizing his communities um, in the 1800s, he was able to, you know, to, to reestablish functional language of, his, of his, um, his, his community. So, you know, we don't know the future. And this mm -hmm. is also points to the incredible resilience of Indigenous peoples that we would do well to listen and learn from. The resilience of Indigenous people, to me, that, is, that gives me so much hope and inspiration for the greater sum of our human family managing to survive through climate change. And that's you know, one of the many reasons we really need to look to Indigenous leadership to help us navigate this bottleneck we are in. Indigenous people have been experiencing the fifth mass extinction event since Columbus arrived in the Americas. Right. So they know how to survive and they need to be leaders in how we move forward. Well, that, that sounds like a hopeful place to end. But before I do let you go, I, I wanted to ask you and ask all our guests this, if you can describe uh, your favorite place in Canada. It could be a happy place you go to in your mind, a place where you go to relax or feel better. An amazing place that I like to visit, even in my mind, is the beach in front of Skidigit, a village on Haida Gwaii. It's a, a wonderful beach that's full of life, full of seafood, and it's right in front of the village, and that village has been there for hundreds, maybe thousands of years. So it's a, a very, a very comforting place to to go to to know that humans and nature can coexist. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for this episode of Explore. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider donating to support more conversations like this one at rcgs.org forward slash polar plunge. And remember, monthly donors get a handsome and warm RCGS toque. Also a reminder to rate and review Explore on Apple Podcast or wherever you listen. These things really help a lot by keeping the algorithm happy and bringing these interviews to a wider audience. And remember to subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, I'm David McGuffin. I think right now we're enjoying very much looking back at the Earth, and it's just been a fantastic experience, and I just can't wait to get back and start telling people We left Simpson about June 10th with the Fur Brigade, consisting of a number of York boats, each manned by 10 voyageurs. For us, Inuit, it means that Inuit or history is very strong. Yeah, we flew low over every inch of the country that it could be. We were hoping that he would fire at us. Oh, I guess 160.